0: We began last time trying to delve into the subject of reconciling Torah with the consensus of modern science. Uh, We touched on the subject of trying to reconcile the age of the universe question, where Torah seems to imply or to indicate the world or the universe is around 6,000 years old. The modern scientific consensus is somewhere in the neighborhood of 13.8 billion years. 15.4 billion years, which is a large enough discrepancy to raise some eyebrows. We did propose several ways of trying to resolve that contradiction. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. But before we begin, I want to address a fundamental question. Must we reckon with what heretics think? Are we perhaps... By having this discussion, are we giving legitimacy to heretics and heresy? Do we say, "Oh, you know what, do we have to make ourselves fit into their worldview? Maybe they should fit into our worldview. Why do we need to bend over backwards to accommodate them? Let, that, let them accommodate us? Maybe we should simply say, yeah, we don't care what science has to say. Not in this matter. Not in any matter. We have Torah why must we reckon with science and i think there is good reason to be skeptical maybe even a bit cynical of current scientific consensus you know we have yet to alter a word of torah they found the dead sea scrolls and they compared them to our torah they are identical There's never been a time in history that we've had to have a revision of Torah where something was disproven, where some new evidence surfaced that caused a crisis. We've never had that. It's the same thing and we don't plan on changing it. Whereas science has proposed, adopted, and subsequently discarded theory upon theory upon theory. They've been wronged again and again. In fact, I read a study, Gerald Schroeder, he's an MIT-trained scientist who wrote all kinds of books on the subject of reconciling Torah and science. He referenced a survey of leading American scientists in 1959, which included a host of questions. Among them was uh, the question, what is your estimate of the age of the universe? And 1959 is not so long ago. We're not talking about uh, the 1500s. This is relatively recent times. And two-thirds of the scientists, when asked the question, how old is the universe, gave the same answer. How old is the universe? The universe is eternal. It's been around forever. They repeated the erroneous conclusion of Plato and Aristotle from 2400 years ago. And then a couple of years later, when it became evident to all that the world the universe is expanding, ergo, it's dynamic, ergo, it's not static, ergo, it did have a beginning, that of course became, became silly. It was like a central tenet of the quote unquote scientific consensus for more than two millennia went up in smoke. And, you know, there's a lot of theories or positions or beliefs that were accepted as gospel until they were disproven and they were discarded. I actually Googled the question. I found the Wikipedia article listing scores of superseded theories in science, meaning beliefs that were universally held by the scientific community until they were quote-unquote superseded, disproven, proven to be untrue, and thrown away. Whereas Torah... The identical Torah, the identical written Torah, the identical Oral Torah, even though, of course, the subject of Oral Torah is something we're still going to discuss a little bit later because the Oral Torah is a little bit more dynamic. It can adapt to new situations. The principles, at least the principles of Oral Torah, have not been changed. And we don't want to give off the impression of equivalence between Torah and science by trying to reconcile the two. And I think that's a good argument. People could say, listen, we have Torah – it's the tradition of our forebearers. It has not been disproven once. In fact, there's abundant evidence for its veracity. The scientific theories of today could very much go to the dustbin of history. Tomorrow, why should we have to reconcile the two? I think that's an argument that people can make. I don't subscribe to that view for several reasons. First of all, there is an important midrash, a very famous midrash, that tells us again. It's based upon a verse in in scripture, but the the refrain is: If someone tells you there is wisdom in the nations, believe them. If they tell you there is Torah in the nation, don't believe them. This became a a, a refrain. People say Chachma or Chachma Bagoyim, in the gen- and once the nations time, and you believe. Someone says there's this wisdom, there's knowledge. There's insight amongst the nations that we do accept. Torah, they don't have wisdom. They do have. In fact, the Talmud talks about, uh, for example, the question of a a person or an expectant mother. They feel a little bit uh, unhealthy or they they feel a little bit weak. Can they eat on Yom Kippur? Yom Kippur is supposed to fast. Can they eat on Yom Kippur? Based upon their feelings, so the Mishnah even says we go to the doctors. We acknowledge the wisdom, the aptitude of the non-Jewish physicians. We do vaccinate. We do believe that you know there is there is science and the scientific wisdom, the scientific method, and the, and there is room that the Torah even carves out for knowledge and wisdom. By the Gentiles, even those, even Gentiles that are not part of the, the, the religious ethos. We don't say, Oh, what are the scientists? No, they don't know anything. They're, they're injecting me with a little bit of polio. That's absurd. Just as an aside, I, I did find a Ramban that talks about vaccinations. The Ramban in the book of Numbers, it talks about the plague. Of the of the serpents, the, all these serpents come attack the, the the people. So what does Moses do? He is told by God to erect this this staff of the serpent made out of a certain metal. And someone is bitten by it; they look at it and they're healed. So the Ramban here, that he quotes, he's like, "Well, this is an interesting thing. You know, we have serpents, and how do you solve the serpents with serpents?" And he says, "This is the, the wisdom. There's a certain wisdom," he says, "where you take the." illness itself and in, in, in manipulated it in a way that the illness itself could actually tackle that illness, which is an interesting idea. I just felt like, wow, we see this Ramban. The Ramban is literally talking about vaccinations. That's uh, an aside. But again, uh, the first point of, of why I think it's important to wrestle with the subject of, of science and Torah, or at least there's validity to that, is because the Torah itself tells us that there is wisdom there. It is not all bunch of bunk. It is, there is legitimacy to it and there is there is truth in it. That's number one. Number two, Torah has to jibe with science because we believe that the Torah is from God. The Torah is divine. Not just the written Torah, the oral Torah. We also believe that the world was created by God, the universe was created by God, the rules of science and physics and biology, all that is God's handiwork. So Torah is God's handiwork, and science is also God's handiwork, therefore there cannot really be a contradiction between God and his Torah and God and his world. They both derive, they both emanate from the same source, and that's by definition we say that any contradiction apparent contradiction is either a reflection of someone's poor knowledge of Torah or someone's poor or erroneous knowledge of science. The contradictions are only superficial. They have to actually agree. And therefore, the cynicism or the skepticism of saying, you know, Torah does not need to cower to science, it presupposes that science is something which is outside of of the godly realm, and we don't say that. We say God's wisdom, God's knowledge is captured in Torah. God's handiwork and his wisdom in the physical world is captured in science and in the world and in the, the rules of the world and what we could discover from the world, and therefore, they have to coexist. And in fact, there's an amazing Rambam where he talks about the mitzvah of loving God. Of course, we say in the Shema, after the declaration of the Shema, the next verse is you shall love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your resources. We're supposed to love God. And the obvious question is, well, we have a hard time even conceptualizing God. Yet we're told that we must have a deep affection, a deep emotion of love towards the entity that we have a hard time even even articulating, even knowing, and understanding on the most basic level. So the Rambam has an amazing write-up of how to get around this problem in his book of mitzvos. Ram wrote a book called the Book of Mitzvos, in which he lists 613 mitzvos. Not only does he list them, 248 positive mitzvos, 365 negative mitzvos, he lists them in order of importance, in the order of centrality to to Torah. So of course, mitzvah number one is believe in God, and it goes on to deal with a more central, direct concepts of 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 our relationship with God and the, the bedrock of Jewish philosophy, and then moves on to the rest of the mitzvahs. Loving God, says the Rambam, mitzvah number three, right there at the top. We have to love God. But how do we do it? How do you love God? Says the Rambam. How do you do it? You think, and you ruminate. It's two levels of thinking. Thinking, deep thinking. In God's mitzvahs, in God's, Torah, in God's handiwork, until you have an insight. And you have pleasure in the insight, which is the highest level of pleasure. That is what it means to love God. The Ramam sets up for us a path to loving God. There's four steps to it. You think. You ruminate. What do you ruminate on? What do you think about? It gives us three options. God's mitzvot, God's Torah, God's handiwork, God's world. Until you have an insight, until you have an understanding, until you have an aha moment, until you, something clicks. And the result of that is this incredible ecstatic pleasure. That pleasure is love of God. That's what the Ram says. Again, if if you were to ask us, what does it mean to love God? We would probably come up with a much different uh, formulation, a, a different way of doing it. This is this is the process that the Rambam outlines. So these four steps, thinking rumination in one of these three areas, insight, pleasure. And he quotes a midrash. He quotes the verse, you should love God with all your heart. How do you do it? I don't know how to do it. What's the following verse? Study Torah. It should be that he place these words upon your heart. Via study of Torah, you understand God, and via understanding God, you love God. There's a groundbreaking insight over here the question that we asked is the question the Rambam is asking. We have a hard time understanding God, conceptualizing God. We're not even allowed to enunciate the name of God. You ever supposed to love him? How do we do that? We cannot conceptualize God himself. Says the Rambam, there is a workaround. We can connect to God, not directly, but via his mitzvot, his Torah, and his world. Those are proxies for us to connect to God. And when it, there's a lot of insights here, but insight number two is once you connect to God via those things and you understand, you have an insight, you have an aha moment, right away you love God. Meaning he doesn't tell us to work on love. You work on knowledge. How do you get to knowledge via one of these three studies, via one of these three disciplines, if you will. Once you have the knowledge Ergo, necessarily, you'll have the love. Once you know God, you will love him. Clear. But how do you know God? You have to connect to these proxies. And again, it, he gives us three options. He doesn't say just go study Torah. That's what I would say maybe. It doesn't say just go study mitzvot on a very deep level. He says choose. You choose option A, connect to God via his Torah. Option B, connect to God via his mitzvot. Option C, connect to God via his world. In in effect, what the Ram is telling us is that it's possible for someone to be in the laboratory and to have the same ecstatic experience as the scholar in the academy, provided, again, they're connecting to God and they're associating the experience with God. You could study the science, divorce from God. And by the way… You can study Torah, also divorced from God. You can say, "Wow, fascinating uh, uh, it, wisdom here from the in, in, from Babylon in Aramaic." It's so stimulating. It's so intelligent. It's so clever. It's so wonderful. And not take it to the last step and say, "Where does it come from?" It's from God. It's possible to to engage in all these studies and all these disciplines and not connect it to the final step. But someone who does recognize that science is God's handiwork can t- connect to God via science and have this incredible ecstatic, euphoric, climactic experience of loving God that the Ram describes as the greatest level of pleasure. But again, this I think should dispel the notion that science is something which was hijacked by the quote-unquote scientists, by the atheists, by the heretics. We have no say in it. No, the Ram is telling us clearly this is God's handiwork. It has to coexist with Torah because both of them come from God, both of them emanate from God. And by the way, by studying science, by studying God's handiwork, it is possible to actually connect to God on a very visceral level. That said, I want to add at least a a caveat. I think there is a legitimate reason for someone to say, you know what, I'm going to avoid the scientists or at least maybe even to adopt the attitude of don't ask, don't tell, don't pursue with science. I am very comfortable with someone saying, listen, Torah is good enough for me. I don't need to reconcile anything. It doesn't matter to me what they say. And I want to say this carefully so I'm not misunderstood. Not because their positions can truly imperil or threaten our faith. Like I said before, I'll say it again, I believe – that every word of the written Torah is from God, every concept, every principle of the Torah is true, is divine, and it can withstand any sort of scrutiny from the scientists, from the heretics, from the atheists, from all of them. And that all positions and all arguments that conflict with Torah are untrue. But we also believe that the Almighty availed the possibility of heresy existing. There's always going to be room for someone to rebel, to reject. There has to be free will. And therefore, when there is one position that tries to discredit Torah, that's maybe popular for thousands of years, and overnight it is disproven, necessarily there has to be another option to rebel that has to materialize because otherwise there's no free will. So, in in fact, what the Torah tells us is that there is always going to be room, at least, for heretics, and there's going to be a certain appeal, says the Talmud, of heresy. In fact, the Talmud tells us that someone who departs from heresy may actually die because you could develop such a close bond with heresy that you become addicted to it, you become dependent upon it, and if you want to depart from it, you if you're truly enmeshed in heresy and you depart it, you're actually – Threatening your own life because you developed a dependency for it, like a chemical dependency that an addict could withdraw, have withdrawal symptoms that could actually threaten their life. What it's telling us is that there is is room for heresy and there is an allure for heresy. And we are not pompous enough to say that we're so intellectually independent and we're so free of... Any potential to fall in the pitfalls of heresy, we're not going to fall prey. We're going to study all the heresy just to know what we disagree with. It's quite likely if someone who takes that attitude will actually fall prey to heresy and will lose their faith. In fact, the Ram tells us a law in the Laws of Idolatry, chapter 2, Halakha number 2, there's many books, this is a quote from the Ram, there's many books that were authored by the idolaters how the how to worship the idolaters and what it does and what its rules are. But the Almighty commanded us to not read those books, to not think about them, to not speak about them, and even to look, even to gaze on the idolatrous pagan imagery is prohibited, quotes a verse. And the verse continues by saying, not only don't do it, but if you do it, you may be drawn after it. And therefore, the halacha is, the law states, we should not ask on the ways of worshiping the the, the idols because that may cause us to deviate and go astray. Jethro is uh, one of the intriguing characters that appears in the Torah. Our say tell us that he was someone that experimented with all the idolatries, with all the methods of, of worship, with all the various uh, pagan deities that existed in his time. Someone may say, you know what? I want to be open-minded. I want to be like Jethro. And I'm confident that I'm able to see the truth from the fiction. I'm confident in that. We don't believe that that's the appropriate attitude because we don't rely on our own ability to be able to discern the truth of the falsehood, to not fall prey to the allure of heresy. We all know that heroin and meth is destructive. Despite the fact that you know that, it would be quite ill-advised for someone to say, you know what? Let me just try to get a sense of what these people are going through. I know it's destructive. I know that it's harmful, but I really want to understand. I want to help those people. I want to understand what they're going through. And therefore, let me just sample it. Of course, that would be silly because you're relying on your own fortitude to be able to not get addicted. And many have tried and few have succeeded. That's the, the the tricky balance that we want to do here. We want to show, we want to demonstrate how Torah and science are not contradictory and quite to the contrary. They're complementary, but we don't want to become a student of heresy along the way, which is why it's very important for us to not uh, immerse ourselves too much in it, to really, really understand it because we acknowledge that a heresy is alluring – and we are fragile and Torah is real and Torah is true. Anything that contradicts that is something which will eventually be discredited, but along the way, we could lose our faith and we don't want to do that. So that's the the introduction to the subject. I think it's, uh, it's important to have that in mind whenever we go um, all these points in mind, that uh, there is wisdom there, that they do coincide. Science is a way to connect to God, yet be aware and, uh, circumspect to, to not really go full, full steam ahead into heresy and, uh, hope to educate yourself. You may not be able to do that. Okay. So let's, let's talk a little bit about the various items in, in the scientific consensus that may be in opposition or may be viewed as being in opposition to to Torah. I want to begin with the origin of species and uh, evolution. I don't think that this is as compelling a question as the age of the universe question for several reasons. Number one, it's not really a complete theory. It's not really a full alternative to Torah. You can't really say, you know what? I want to avoid the miracles. I want to avoid the supernatural. I want to be more rational and therefore I'm going to adopt uh this as my worldview evolution because there's all kinds of parts of the origin of species that it does not address. For example, where does matter come from is not a subject that is within the sphere of of maybe even science but certainly not evolution. You know, the question of even inanimate matter, where does that come from? We have an answer in the Torah. And science doesn't really address that. It doesn't, doesn't actually solve the question of where species came from. Moreover, the true origin of species is also outside of the purview of evolution because it starts with animate matter. It starts with the amoeba. How does the amoeba come into existence? again, is outside the scope of science, which is their way of saying that's a miracle. Well, if both sides have to believe in miracles, I'd rather take the easier miracle to believe in than the, the harder miracle. You know, that idea of a single protein, which is, by the way, something that there's literally billions of them, billions upon billions of them in each one of your billions and billions and billions of cells, for that to spontaneously come into existence it's so astonishingly, preposterously, absurdly far-fetched that to assume that it happened without some sort of miracle, which we would call intelligent design, we would call God. But even, even the evolutionists, even the scientists, they are not even willing to, to go out uh, on a limb, so to speak, to, to conceptualize or to, maybe there are some I guess the, the room for, uh, theoretical speculation is maybe endless, but there really isn't an answer to that question. And of course, that's not one problem. That's a million problems. There's a trillion species on this planet and you have not one problem, not one miracle, but trillions of them. So the theory conveniently, uh, starts from point B. You have an amoeba. You have a single celled organism and then. Evolution will just turn it into an elephant. Sure, that, that's that's no problem. Good luck with that. But my point is, I think that I don't find it as much of a of a problem uh, or of a question with with Torah because the Meba itself is a miracle. There's miracles. There's holes in the theory, and therefore it doesn't bother me so much. Now, I think there's different ways of uh of dealing with. Evolution and Torah, I think there are those who reject the theory entirely. They note that the evidence is kind of flimsy. There's all kinds of inconsistencies. There's been all kinds of evolutions to evolution. You know, the Darwinian evolution has been discarded. The idea of slow, gradual change over millions, billions of years, now it's more the punctuated equilibrium. Every long amount of time, there's this black swan event. There's this one event that changes everything. And enough of those things happen over the course of billions of years. But that's essentially uh, a new theory. In addition, the the evolution that you grew up with in, in biology class in sixth grade, the idea of survival of the fittest, the idea of the, the extinction happens to the less fit species and only the ones that are more fit survive, that was – also discarded the ones that went extinct. They went extinct for other reasons, not because they were less suited to survive. You know, think about the dinosaurs, these ferocious and powerful and intelligent beings and some of them are extinct. Where's the survival of the fittest in that? And of course, there's other parts, things that won't explain. And there are those that take the approach of saying, listen, the whole theory is, is baseless, is groundless, and it's not true. But I think there's another way to look at it. I think we could say that even if it was true, or at least the basic building blocks of the theory are true, it doesn't at all conflict with Torah. Evolution is a description of the process of creation. How the world was effectuated, how the species came into existence. The Torah, to my knowledge, doesn't really address that question. The Torah tells us who created, not how he created. The means and the methods that God used are not really revealed in the Torah. You have maybe a hint of it over here and there, God used earth to create Adam. Adam. But again, what does that even mean? We don't even know. Can we suggest that God used an evolutionary process to create the world. And maybe they're not arguing. They're both saying the truth. One's describing, Torah is describing who created, evolution is describing how he created, and they're not at all in conflict. And I know this is not such a revolutionary dip. People have said it before, but again, there is an approach to reconcile it that way by pointing out they're not even in, in opposition. Maybe evolution is true. It's just that God is at the wheel manipulating creating one thing out of another, and that really solves the problem. And the proponents of that reconciliation note that if you read Genesis, and again, you have one or two chapters talking about creation, obviously it's not an exhaustive account, obviously. But if you read it, it does seem to have a certain progression from less sophisticated to more sophisticated, the last thing that's created is Adam. The most advanced, maybe. You could make that argument. Uh, there is also a Ramban. That actually, in the very first verse on the Torah, the Ramban talks about the two kinds of creation that happen in Genesis. There's the creation nihilo, something out of nothing, which is only on day one, says the Ramban, The rest of the days, from day two through day six, the creation was not ex nihilo, something out of nothing. It was taking the existing, the extant matter and repurposing, reshaping, reformatting it into something else. And he explains that the word bara and the word yatsar, two words used to describe creation, one of them is creating something out of nothing and one of them is creating something out of something else. And Again, he tells us that day one, God created bara, something out of nothing, and the rest of the days, he used the existing matter to make something else out of that matter, which again seems to lend credence to the idea that the things that were created were created out of something else. So again, it's not exactly the idea of evolution, but it's not too distant, and this is the Ramban, the most legitimate of all sources, that tells us Day two creation, days three creation, days four creation, day, day, day five creation. The animals were made out of something else, not out of nothing. Okay, so that uh, gives a little bit grounds to at least the, the big picture idea of of evolution in in the very reputable sources. In fact, the Ramban asked the question in verse twenty one. It talks about the great sea serpents or the great sea monsters. We don't even know what that is. It's a big debate what that is, but it's some sort of animal that's created. In again, verse 21 of chapter 1 of Genesis, and it says the word Vayivra, Bara, God created these giant sea monsters. Wait a minute, says the Rabban, didn't I tell you that the creation ex nihilo, the creation with the word Bara is only on day one? Why does he use, in verse twenty verse 21, it talks about the creation of the Taninim the great sea monsters, or the great serpent animals, or the great crocodiles, whatever it may be, the like great uh, dinosaurs, whatever it may be, why does he use the word bara? And similarly, in verse 27, it says, Vayivra God created man. He uses the word Vayivra. So the rabban asked the question, why does he use the word bara, not the word yatsar? It should have said Vayitzar Elokim or Vayitanim tanimagdolim, man. So he tells us, he says, because these creations were so important and so revolutionary and so out of the ordering and such outliers in the Genesis story. Therefore, it's as if there's something brand new that wasn't existing previously. Yes, they were created out of something else. But because they are so different, they're so distinct than everything else, it uses the word to kind of highlight the fact that God brought something new into existence. It uses the word for creation as nihilo. And yes, of course, he adds – All creation ultimately comes from nothing. Because even the matter that you're using to reform into something else was initially created something out of nothing. So it's still technically accurate. But in order to, 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 to highlight the fact that these are such unique things, it uses the words typically reserved for creation acts in the Hilo. It uses it even for things that were made out of something else. So again, the, the idea that the Ramban, that I want, want to pull out from the Ramban is that there's these building blocks of of matter that is created on day one and all creation subsequently after day one are repurposing the extant matter using something and making something else out of it and it does sound at least in the broad picture like what the uh, theory of evolution is trying to tell us. The Rabban also quotes a Talmudic dispute in the book of Hulin on page 27b, regarding what God used to create the animals. The Talmud is talking about something entirely unrelated to the origin of species. It's talking about why the method of slaughtering animals is different with the bird and with the animal and with the fish. fish you don't need to slaughter at all. The animal, you have to slaughter both vital signs and the bird it's only one vital sign why is there an inconsistency so the talmud quotes uh, a opinion professed by a galilean visitor someone visited the galilee and he said the following thing we don't know who it is we don't know the identity of this visitor of the of the galilee we know the sages were in the galilee you assume someone came to visit and this is what he said but obviously it run true and the sages incorporated it into the talmud what did he say He said that the animals were created out of the land and therefore it's less spiritual and you need to slaughter both signs in order to make it kosher. Whereas the fish, they're created out of the water, which is more spiritual. And therefore you don't need to slaughter it in any way. You just kill it and it's kosher. And then you have the birds that were created out of the mud, half water, half earth, and therefore it's kind of the hybrid. You need to do one sign and it's kosher. That's what this Galilean visitor, what he posited. And the Talmud goes on to say, yes, I have evidence that the birds were made out of the uh out of the mud, out of the half water, half Half earth, because if you look at their feet, they have scales on their feet. And that's the the kind of the parts of them that are like the fish. They have scales like the fish on their feet. And therefore, yes, it seems to lend credence to this idea that they're this hybrid. They, they, yes, they they they're like animals, but they're also like fish. That's what the Talmud says. And as an aside, you read that and Again, this is in the Talmud from 2000 years ago, before the idea of, uh, vestigial organs was, uh, was conceived. But this would obviously dispel, uh, that evidence of overlapping body parts, uh, of different animals. Doesn't necessarily mean that, uh, it came via some evolutionary process. It means that there's some sort of overlap, some sort of commonality, but that could all be part of, uh, of what we believe, at least. But again, I think what we could clearly derive from all of this is that we don't know exactly how they might create the species. It may very well be via some sort of evolutionary like uh, process, and we could, we could resolve the conflict in, in that, in that way. I want to add another source, another citation, a very interesting citation from the Sephorno. Sephardim, again, a reputable commentary on the Torah in, uh, in, in the book of Genesis chapter one, verse number 26. The verse says, let us make man. Very famous, very problematic verse from a theological standpoint. Who's God talking to? Look at Rashi and look at the, all this, everyone talks about that. But how do we understand this verse? So the way we understand it, simply, you read it simply, the way the rest of the commentaries understand it, and say, let us make man and make him in our image, in our likeness. Let us make man in our image and our likeness. The way he reads it is a little bit different, but it makes the entire like it again. Once you realize what he's saying, you read it quickly and not realize what he's saying. The way he reads it is as follows: Let us take man and endow him with our likeness and our image. Again, he says it very clearly. There is a something called Adam, a man, which is one of the animals that I already created. His name is man. Let us now infuse him into being this higher level of being a man who is in our likeness and our image. So the idea of proto-humans, the idea of humanoids, of homo sapiens, of some sort of pre-Adamic man, i.e. pre-Adam, that you find in a source that is uh, a medieval source in in the Torah, one of the most reputable sources that uh that we have on the Torah, you'll open up any uh any Macros Kodolos, any book of Torah that has commentary, it'll have the commentary of the Sephorno, he says that uh very, very shocking, startling statement that man was a previous creature that was kind of created twice, it was created like as a regular animal and then created again infused with his higher intellect, with his higher soul, whatever that means. So maybe the previous ones were the Neanderthals, the cavemen. Again, there is, if someone wants to believe that, there is definitely robust evidence or robust uh, positions to rely upon. And for those reasons, I am not as disturbed by the questions of reconciling evolution and Torah I find it less compelling because there's lots of ways to resolve it that I think are uh, – any way you choose, it's fine. If, so, if I want someone to say, listen, I believe in, in the evidence. The evidence is sufficient. There was evolution, but God was at the helm. If someone wants to say, hey, the Torah seems to indicate that, I think those are both positions that are, are totally fine. Someone could also say, no, God didn't use that method. He evolution is a bunch of baloney. I think there's also credence for that. There are are some scientists that wrote uh, some convincing books, uh, along th- those lines. But my 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 general point is that the age of the universe question is a more uh, compelling question. And last time, we shared some reconciliations of that dilemma. We talked about the idea of the 49,000-year world. We referenced some Torah sources that talk about the world that preceded ours, God created worlds, he destroyed them. The Torah was created 974 generations before the world was created. Again, there's all these hints of a world that preceded ours and we shared a very clever idea from – Again, sages that are uh, 700 years old uh, or older, so not recent ones, not, not recent apologetics that talk about the idea of the world being many, many, many years older than what it would seem from a simple reading of the text, maybe even to the tune of billions. So that we spoke about last time. I was mentioned last time the idea that the Talmud tells us that Adam was created as a 20-year-old – The world was created as a developed world. It wasn't a baby world. It was a developed world. And thus, we could say, you know, if you took Adam, the day he was born, the minute he was born, and you took some of his cells and you brought it to the laboratory and you would ask the lab, you know, how old is this person? They would say he's 20 years old because the cells, you know, they show the breakdown and the aging of a 20-year-old person. If you would say he's a second old, that would also be true. If you say he's 20 years old, that would also be true. And that's another, another way to solve the problem by saying, yes, God created the world 6,000 some odd years ago, 5, 7, 7, 9, again, in the neighbor of 6,000 years ago, but it looks to us like being billions of years old because God created it looking such. I want to share another reconciliation, a very, another very clever one, uh, based upon the Einsteinian Theory of Relativity of Time. This approach was posited by Rabbi Shimon Schwab. was published in 1962, and it was featured in a book that I have a copy of, a book called Challenge. The subtitle is Torah Views on Science and Its Problems. This is a thick book, a compilation of essays on the subject of Torah and science. Rabbi Schwab was a rabbi in Germany. Subsequently, he moved to the United States. In 1934, he moved to the United States. He was a rabbi in Baltimore, later a rabbi in Manhattan. He was a very deep thinker, very creative thinker. And his idea was to focus on the nature of the six days of creation. His answer to our question, how old is the universe, is 5779, rounded up to 6,000. 6,000 plus six days. And the general idea is that looking back on those six days, from our perspective, makes it appear as it was billions of years when in its time, it was only six days. How does he come to that conclusion? So he begins his essay, and I don't want to go through the whole essay, it's a long essay, and... It's also a little bit hard to read. Uh, I, I commented, I think it could have used a better editor, but uh, the, the, the central idea, uh, we're going to try to, try to share. He begins his essay by trying to avoid what he calls a, um, sophisticated attempt to try to explain away these creation days as six periods of undefined length. He doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want to say, well, it's six days, but what's a day? A day is really a billion year. He doesn't want to do that. He says, a day is a day is a day. We know there's six days. There's the seventh day, which is Shabbos. It's 24 hours. It's a day. That said, what is the nature of a day of creation compared to a day that we have today? As we mentioned, there is no sun that's regulating time until – Day four, how do you tell time when there's nothing to indicate passage of time? So he, in a painstaking way, he reads Genesis based upon the Midrashic sources. And he quotes some Midrash that talks about a time system that was present at the moment of creation. And obviously not the same time system we have today. But he talks about the creation of light. In verse 3, God created light. Verse 4, God separates the light from the darkness. And verse 5, God calls the concept of light day and the concept of darkness night. And the transfer of time from day to night is what's called Erev and Boker. And he points out the word Erev in Hebrew means mixture. And again, based upon the sources, the idea of mixture of light and darkness, like when it's dust, you, you kind of see, you kind of don't see. It's half light, half dark. That's what's called Erev and Boker, where it's just light. And he notes that the Torah's prescription of, of days, of the transfer of days, is Erev and then Boker. That, that, that marks one day. And his answer to our dilemma of how old is the universe is the universe is, you know, around 6,000 years plus six creation days. And he goes on to say that we have this light from day one, which is not captured in the sun. And when it gets murky, it's Erev, it's night, it's evening. And when it gets bright, it is day. So there's something called a creation light, what he calls it. He calls it a creation light. And when the creation light appears and then stops appearing and then appears again – that is what marks a day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six, day six of the creation week. So we have a unit of time, but the way it's defined is in a very specific way, the appearance and the disappearance of the creation light. Today, we have a different system of time, which is the rotation of the earth. One rotation of the earth and its axis is a day. And we also have the appearance of the light and the appearance of the darkness. That is two ways that we measure time today. But he points out from the sources that throughout that first week, the appearance of the creation light and the disappearance of creation light, that is what marked a day, nothing else. So what he speculates is that there's nothing that indicates necessarily that the system that we currently use today, i.e. the rotation of the Earth on its axes, as the day that that was the same system that was used during the first week of creation to mark the change of one day to the next. All we know is the appearance of the creation light and the disappearance and the appearance again. Is it possible that the Earth turned on its axes a million times before that light appeared and disappeared. There's nothing to indicate that that, that would not be so. And he gives an analogy. It's a very long essay. He gives an analogy of of two clocks. You have two clocks, one clock is the automatic clock. Another clock has someone who is manipulating it. He could be spinning it a billion times before that one makes one turn. You have two clock systems. And his suggestion is there's more analogies of speeding up time, and you know he's he, he's trying to convey a point, what we would call the relativity of time. His suggestion is that it is quite possible, maybe even likely, based upon some other evidence that he brings, that the Earth spun its axis more than once every time that the creation line appeared, and maybe even billions and billions of times, billions and billions of years. Before it appeared, again, there's no reason for us to be, to assume any other, any other way. And he quotes a Talmud. The Talmud in the book of Sanhedrin, page 38b, it gives us an account of the sixth day, the 12 hours of the sixth day. And it says, the first hour, Adam's dust was gathered. The second hour, it was formed into a shapeless mass. The third hour, his limbs were shaped. The fourth hour, his soul was infused within him. The fifth hour, he arose and stood on his feet. And then what happens the rest of the day? A flurry of activity. Sixth hour, he names all the animals. Every single animal, we're told, Adam gave a name to it in one hour. The seventh hour, his wife Eve became his mate. The eighth hour, the twins were born, Cain and Abel. The ninth hour, he's commanded not to eat from the tree of knowledge. The tenth hour, he actually does commit the sin. The 11th hour he is tried and the 12th hour he is expelled or he's told that he's going to be expelled. Obviously, there's a lot happening in a very short amount of time, in a few hours. He points out, he's like, life in the Garden of Eden, naming all the creatures, creation of Eve, mating, childbirth, temptation, the fall of Adam, the expulsion, all happened between 12 noon and 6 o'clock in the evening. Obviously... The system of time and the limitations, the rigidity, the strictures of time that we have today were not in place at that time. So again, the speculation is, or the, 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 the theory is that the synchronization of the two systems, the two clocks are being synchronized. That is what he calls Shabbos. The fact that the creation light appears and the earth spins on its axis and these two time systems are now synchronized. That is what he calls Shabbos, kind of the marriage of the heavenly day and the earthly day. Therefore, again, the argument goes that looking back as we do with the tools that we have to measure how many times did the earth spin on its axis? Yes, that would indicate billions of years. But the six days of creation, the days were marked by a different system of time, the time of the appearance and the reappearance of the creation light. That's the only, that's the only description of time that we have in Genesis. And again, there's, there's reasons to believe that these are not ordinary days, even though in their time they are ordinary days, because an ordinary day in that time is the appearance and the reappearance of the creation light. If we were to have an atomic clock, he talks about the idea that maybe the earth was spinning a lot faster, if everything's happening faster. Maybe the atomic clock is registering twelve hours, provided that my clock is working with the speed that we currently have, whereas it was twelve hours by our clock, but it was billions of years by their clock because everything was spinning faster. Again, essentially it's taking the theory of relativity of time, that time is relative to the location, to the gravitational pull, to the acceleration, to the speed that something's ha- happening. And thus it's twelve hours an hour clock, but in their clock, it's spinning very, very rapidly. And looking back, again, using our clock, it, because our clocks were slowed down, so to speak, everything looks a lot older. That's the general breakdown of that theory. Uh, Dr. Schroeder, I mentioned earlier, uh, he actually worked out the physics. He elaborated on, on this particular theory. It's not an essay. He's written, written multiple books. Uh, there's a book called Genesis and the Big Bang. Uh, I think another book he wrote called The Science of God. Again, he is highly credentialed as a scientist, but he made it his life's mission to try to reconcile these two. He worked out the physics of of this general theory. His idea or his spin on it is a little bit different, but the the, the general takeaway is the same. That we know that the size of the universe affects – the the relativity of time. So if you know if the whole universe is the size of a marble or of a, a a grain of dust, obviously time is happening a lot faster. And as the Earth gets bigger, time is slowing down. And uh, he I, again, it's it's obviously complicated, but he writes the book for the layman. His basic breakdown is that from the Torah's perspective, you have six days Whereas from our perspective, within those 24 hours of the day, you would have 7.1 billion years in day one and then the earth is so much bigger so day two, time slows down a little bit so it's only 3.6 billion years and the 1.8 and 0.89 and 0.45 and 0.23 match those times together and you have a very, very old earth. And he goes on to add that if you actually look on the day's and his calculation of how long each day was relative to how we look at time, and you see what was created that day, you'll see how it actually matches, it exactly fits the scientific consensus of what was developed and what was created, you know, how many eons ago and how how long ago did this appear and how long ago, ago did that appear, etc. So a very fascinating uh, theory. Again, I am not trying to say that any, any one of these approaches are definitive or authoritative. But I do think it's important for us to recognize that there's a lot of different options for us to choose. We should not become frightened where when the scientists seem to say something which is different from Torah. We're confident that these two ways connected to God can both bring us to our destination We don't want to immerse ourselves in heresy because it's not likely to end up well for us. But we could be comfortable with our immersion in Torah, with our adoption of Torah, uh, with the knowledge that there's all kinds of ways of removing any apparent contradictions between, between Torah and science, between the origin of species and science. They could work together. They could be reconciled in any number of ways. And that I think it's a very it's a comforting thought, uh, especially because you know in our world, the science is is taught as gospel, and the Torah is is not taught at all, and therefore there's an asymmetry, and we're trying to connect to Torah, we're trying to connect to our heritage, to connect to our soul, to uh, dare I say connect to religion, and it's important for us to to to. Be aware of 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 the idea that Torah is from God. His world is also from Him. There is no contradiction. It may seem like there is a contradiction, but there's all any number of ways for those to be resolved, and uh, we need not worry of any crisis of faith developing from from this. And again, quite right to the contrary, the Rambam tells us if someone wants to connect to God, you could take his handiwork. You'd go study science. You marvel at the amazing things that just exist within our own body and you don't even need to get a microscope. Just just think about how amazing it is and how wonderful it is and how fantastic it is and how just, you know, the fact that your fingers bend, something as simple as that, how convenient it, it is. You know, put, your, put all 10 of your fingers in splints and try to drive a car. Good, good luck, right? And again, that is a process of trying to love God, to connect to God by noticing just how amazing he makes his world and how convenient it is for us. So that uh, concludes, again, there is a lot more to say about it, but that concludes our study of reconciling uh, Torah and, and science. Next time, we're going to try to uh, continue our study of the 13 principles of faith. And principle number five, which is the idea that uh, one of the principles of of our religion, one of the, the bases of our religion, one of the foundations of our religion is that there's only one entity that is worthy of our worship, and that is God and nothing else. My email address is RabbiWolby at If you have any questions, comments, feedback of any sort, I look forward to hearing from you. Uh, our organization, Torch's website is torchweb.org. My own personal website is RabbiWolby.com. Uh, Check out all the podcasts on your favorite podcast app. Thank you for listening. I deeply appreciate it.